you could have 50 people tell you not to eat Honey Nut Cheerios for breakfast and that eggs and avocado and spinach would be a better option. But until you see your glucose going up 120 points in 15 minutes and then crashing down 45 minutes later, leaving you feeling lethargic and tired and anxious and have more cravings for sugar. Like there's nothing that compares to that, to seeing your body generate sort of that motivating information. Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. This is Ben Pakulski. I'm the host uh, with most trying to get you healthy, get you fit, get you happy, all the above. There's so many things that tie into optimization of self, whether it be physical optimization through training, through aerobic fitness, um, through mobility work, um, metabolic optimization, through nutrition, through lifestyle interventions, through, street, through stress management. Sometimes it can be really confusing, overwhelming, and certainly daunting to determine what action to take, which one's a big lever, which one's a small lever. Today, I'm going to share with you one of the biggest levers that I've personally worked with a lot over the last it's probably five years or so, um, and that's called the continuous glucose monitor. You may see people wearing them on the back of their arm. Many people assume that I'm diabetic or something when they see me wearing it, but no, I'm just a huge nerd trying to figure out how to understand my metabolism, understand ultimately behavior change when it comes to nutritional interventions. So I have this belief that nutrition is more of a behavior problem than it is a food problem. If uh, left to the, make the decision between high-calorie foods and low-calorie foods, I think every human in this world, at least most, are going to unconsciously choose the high-calorie food simply because hey, high-calorie foods have kept us alive for hundreds of thousands of years, if not millions of years, and that's what we're wired to eat so when you have something on the back of your arm called the continuous glucose monitor, giving you real-time feedback as to what this is doing with the internal chemistry of your body, it can be a very, very strong signal to help you change. So when I eat foods and my glucose spikes, I'm immediately going, gosh, maybe this isn't so good for me. Glucose spikes are not always the best thing, which we're going to talk about in today's podcast. Uh, Dr. Casey Means joins me today from Levels Health. Levels Health, if you're not familiar with the company, is a company that has created a software that integrates with the continuous glucose monitor to allow you to ultimately understand uh, into your interventions, understand what happens when I eat this food, what happens when I don't sleep enough, what happens when I'm stressed, and how all of these things ultimately tie into metabolic health. What is metabolic health? Ultimately, the ability to produce energy at the cellular level without delay, without ultimately moving in the direction of disease. We want our metabolism to be healthy, we want to to do all the healthy so we can thrive, so we can think, so we can perform. And so this is one of the most important conversations I've had in a long time. We talk a lot around um, how you can ultimately intervene with your food choices, how you can intervene with your lifestyle to learn to manage glucose. We talk about um, my personal preferences and how I manage glucose. And if you listen all the way to the end, I'm actually going to do a summary of all the personal interventions that I use and ultimately how you can start looking at managing your glucose and why you ultimately should, if you're somebody who's trying to manage your weight or live long, uh, strongly consider using a continuous glucose monitor, something that ultimately measures your glucose. Now, how often should you use it? I'll talk about that at the end of the podcast. Um, what types of benefit will you receive? I'll talk about the end of the podcast. And I have become an advocate and fan of continuous glucose monitors simply as one of the top interventions I've been able to come across for giving us real-time feedback on what we're doing. I love it. I'm saying levels.link, L-I-N-K, 
slash muscle. Get hooked up right now. Enjoy the show with Dr. Casey Means. Today's podcast is brought to you by us here at Muscle Intelligence. We are launching a brand new program for men over 40. Gentlemen, the thing that seems to happen as we age is we start to use softeners. We start to use euphemisms and we start to diminish our personal standard. Know what I'm talking about? Sound familiar? It's like, ah, oh, not so bad. Oh, this is not so bad. Oh, you know, this shirt doesn't fit quite the same anymore, but it's okay. You know, maybe you're married, maybe you're successful, maybe you have kids, and maybe your fitness isn't your top priority anymore. Or maybe it's it's not, it's never been. Maybe it's time to make it your first priority. And what muscle intelligence is solving for our population is ultimately creating a standard of physical capability, of metabolic capability for men over 40. We want you to know what your peers are capable of. We want you to know what you are capable of and also maintain that standard now and for the rest of your life. I believe we should be physically capable of doing what we did when we were 21, 25 for the rest of our life. And that's physical capability as far as am I strong? Am I muscular? Am I lean? Am I able to run, jump, and and sprint and play? And all those amazing things that ultimately are tied directly to our long-term health outcomes, that and so much more. So if you're not already part of the Muscle Intelligence community, head over to muscleintelligence.com slash community and join our community. You can join our Facebook community uh, and you will be getting, uh, you'll be one of the first to know when this program launches because we're going to be taking a very limited number of men uh, over 40 who ultimately are all aspiring to be the highest and best version of themselves physically, highest and best version of yourself metabolically, and ultimately in life, if you're someone who's already succeeding in many areas, but maybe you're not there in your fitness, or maybe you just want to be better and surround yourself with guys who are truly exceptional, head over to muscleintelligence.com slash community. Join us in the community so you can be up to date um, with that and so much more. If you're not already part of our VIP newsletter, I highly suggest you do that as well. You can find that link there on muscleintelligence.com slash community page. Again, thank you to you for being here and enjoy the podcast with Dr. Casey Means. Continuous glucose monitors is a hot topic around the entire fitness sphere, certainly in the functional medicine space. Dr. Casey Means joins me today from Levels to discuss about everything metabolic health and CGM. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Casey. Hey, Ben. It's so great to see you. I can't wait for this chat. Yeah, likewise. And so I've been using a CGM, as I mentioned, for quite a long time and really just as a means of self-experimentation. I think I'm I'm a nerd and stuff like uh, many of us in this space. And I've seen tremendous benefit when it comes to behavior change, specifically in myself and the clients that I suggest this to. And so I'm very excited to dig into what yourself and what levels have ultimately been studying and researching for many years and what the future holds. Amazing. Yeah. So first, I'd love to understand uh, how long you've been with Levels and maybe you want to tell a little bit what Levels is specifically. And I don't often like to talk about companies, but this company is, is a very specific target, very specific objective. Sure. So the the purpose of Levels is to reverse the metabolic disease epidemic. That's our mission. We have a lofty goal. Uh, we we All the listeners probably know how severe this uh, health catastrophe is right now. We've got about 50% of American adults with type 2 diabetes or prediabetes, and that's half the country. And most of that is preventable. And of course, that's related to so many of the chronic diseases that are also just decimating Americans today from heart disease to stroke to Alzheimer's, dementia, fatty liver disease, cancer, et cetera. We know that these are, are all related to fundamental issues in metabolism, even mental health issues like depression and anxiety and even ADHD and schizophrenia. So the metabolic talons are deep, unfortunately, in the American population. And so Levels really exists and was started to help move those stats in the opposite 
direction. So we started four years ago. Uh, we're, we're going on our four-year anniversary now. And the real premise is the democratization of metabolic health data. The world that we live in right now with our healthcare culture is one where you have to go to your doctor and basically bank for crumbs of information about your own health, especially metabolic biomarkers. You may get your cholesterol panel, your fasting glucose, your A1C checked maybe once a year. A lot of young people aren't even doing it that frequently. And you know, then you go over them in about a 30-second review with your doctor. And if there's green check marks next to them, the doctor will say everything's fine. And if there's red X's next to them in the electronic health record, you might get a platitude about eating healthy and exercising more. And I think we all know that there just has to be a, a better way. And we saw this emergence of this technology, continuous glucose monitors, which are this wearable sensor that you put on your body that's actually doing a lab test in the background, basically 24 hours a day, seven days a week, sending you a real-time stream of lab data to your smartphone that for the first time ever actually can give you real-time information about what's going on with one aspect of your metabolism, but also close the biofeedback loop between the choices that you're making every day and what's going on with your blood sugar. So this is really how Level started was thinking, hey, why don't we bring this technology to people who are trying to be healthy, trying to understand their bodies more, trying to understand cause and effect, trying to cut through the noise of nutrition dogma and empower people with their personal health their information so that they can make better choices that ultimately lead to improved metabolic health. So that's that was what Levels was founded on. And we say that Levels shows you how food affects your health, which is a simple premise, but it's a powerful one because we know that most Americans are confused about nutrition. If you survey people at large, the average American is both confused and distressed about conflicting nutrition information. So with a wearable device that's actually giving you real-time information about cause and effect with food and blood sugar, for the first time, your body is giving you a signal about what's working for you. And it really cuts through the, the loud marketing language that's out there that can be really, really confusing. So we've had a lot of members over the last four years who have gone from this sense of overwhelm and almost like obsession with nutrition and diet to actually be able to be quite freed up uh, from that mental noise to really just understand what foods and what lifestyle combinations are best for keeping their blood sugar more stable um, and in a tighter range, which we know is uh, associated with better health outcomes over time. We want to reduce those up and down swings in glucose to a more gentle rolling hills within a narrow range uh, in order to reduce glycemic variability, which we know is associated with risk of future chronic diseases and also impacts our day-to-day function. When that glucose is swinging way high and way low, it can lead to energy crashes. It can lead to cravings. It can lead to fatigue. It can even lead to like mood instability throughout the day and anxiety. And so keeping that glucose more stable by understanding this feedback loop not only helps with our our day-to-day life, but also with that long-term risk profile while also giving us this personal understanding about our bodies that is really empowering and sort of subverts the system, the healthcare system that really wants to keep your data separate from you um, in a way that largely benefits the healthcare industry, but not so much uh, individuals. Yeah. And so first I'll say that I think a CGM does a lot more than just tying your food 
to your health. I think it's doing it's tying your stress to your health, your sleep to your health, and you're able to see how these, as you say, lifestyle, uh, whether it be interventions or effects, influence how your body's metabolism. And so let's rewind for a second. I'd love to hear your definition of what metabolism is, um, and then I'll we'll, we'll shift into the idea of metabolic health because. Um, I think that's ultimately the question, as you say, we're trying to solve here is like, how do we help people be more metabolically effective, metabolically healthy? And so first, how would you define metabolism? So metabolism is the set of all the chemical reactions of the body that convert food to cellular energy. So we take in all these different chemical substrates into the body through food. We eat about 70 metric tons of food across our lifetime. And really one of the purposes of this food is to be transformed into a a currency of energy that our cells can use to power every single reaction in the body. Our whole life, our whole lived experience, our whole perception of the world is just the bubbling up of all these chemical reactions that are happening in our 40 plus trillion cells. And every single one of those is powered by cellular energy, which of course um, is ATP, uh, adenosine triphosphate, this, this coin, you know, that we use to pay for every one of the many trillions of reactions that are happening every second in our bodies that bubbles up into our lives. So metabolism is, it is our animating life force. It is our, it is our literal life force. Um, and, you know, as we know, as we talked about just a minute ago, right now, metabolism is totally under siege in the modern Western world. Uh, the majority of Americans have a metabolic problem. We're actually having trouble with making energy in the body, which is foundational to all health. So what's so interesting about about health right now is that we have so many chronic diseases that we're sort of talking about and dealing with, many of which I mentioned earlier, but underneath all of them, what we're learning more and more is a fundamental problem with how our cells are powered. And so we treat in our Western medical system all these diseases as different silos, as if they're different things. But now with the research that's happened over the past five, 10 years with whole genome sequencing and metabolomics and all these more high throughput um, sort of aspects of, of research that let us see the systems biology perspective, how things are connected on the cellular level. We're actually seeing that so many diseases are actually fundamentally the same. But the key thing here, though, is that you can have the same process, metabolic dysfunction, happening in different cell types. And that can look like a different disease. So something, a metabolic problem that's happening in a liver cell could look like fatty liver disease. If it's happening in an ovary, it could look like polycystic ovarian syndrome, the leading cause of infertility. If it's happening in different parts of the brain, it could look like fibromyalgia, migraines, depression, anxiety, ADHD, or Alzheimer's dementia, all of which have a metabolic root. Uh, if it's happening in blood vessels, it could look like stroke, heart disease, erectile dysfunction, or retinopathy, all diseases of problems with blood flow. And so essentially, I think the real framing that people need to understand is that metabolism is how we make energy in the body from food. Metabolism right now is broken in the average American body. And that is the root cause of almost every chronic symptom and disease we're facing today. Not because those things are different diseases or symptoms, but because they're actually rooted in the same problem showing up in different cell types. Yeah. And the reason I say that I think it does so much more than just tie our food to our to our health is because through all of what you said there, the common thread is nutrition is not a food problem. Nutrition ultimately is a behavior problem. 
And when you put someone who's hungry, and I've heard someone say this recently on, on Instagram, I'll use this reference, is some, someone says, if you don't want, you're not willing to eat a bowl full of cauliflower and broccoli, you're not really hungry. I'm like, well, that's just not logical or sensical. If you put a bowl of broccoli and cauliflower in front of someone, and you put a bowl of ice cream in front of someone, there, 99% of humans are going to choose the high calorie dense foods. So it's a behavior choice. It's a, it's a problem in the behavior. And what I love about CGMs and specifically levels is you're getting an immediate feedback loop. So I can see when I eat broccoli, my glucose is flat. When I eat ice cream, my glucose does crazy things. And then I can immediately start to feel like, oh, when I do that, I feel this way. An hour later, I feel this way. Like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that anymore. And I think there's there's a lot to be you know, carried down the line as well as this metabolic health conversation. Like metabolic health ultimately, as you're saying, is is probably just or, or, or the absence of metabolic health is often the, the result of lack of um, physical competency. So lack of exercise and movement. And then probably an excess of calories across the board, right? And the combination of the two. Um, so what ultimately I find that levels and, and similar devices are doing is they're, they're giving us immediate real-time feedback to change our behavior. And I'm curious if you, if you feel that I'm, that I'm correct in saying that nutrition is more of a behavior problem and what levels is ultimately doing is solving this behavior problem, helping us solve the behavior problem. I think absolutely. I mean, I think we're living in a really challenging time right now in terms of our food culture where everywhere everywhere right where unfortunately the foods that are most widely accessible most highly marketed and cheapest are the foods that are most damaging to our health and so hype yeah hyper palatable food scientists creating you know bliss point frankenstein foods yeah franken foods and then of course the federal government is subsidizing the production of these foods through several mechanisms production and actually also accessibility. Uh, one, by the farm bills, which preferentially support crops that go into processed foods. So um, corn, soy, uh, wheat that get, of course, turned into like high fructose corn syrup and ultra processed grains, which are going to create metabolic dysfunction. They also sponsor this by, of course, federally funding the U.S. the school lunch program, which is the largest school lunches are the largest fast food chain in, in the country, essentially. And they're serving pro- ultra processed foods, 3 billion meals per year to kids. You've got the federal government subsidizing food assistance support programs like SNAP and WIC, um, which the uh, huge percentage of the top line item on those programs is soda. So we're basically federally subsidizing a huge portion of like Coke's uh, yearly revenue with your taxpayer dollars, which is of course disproportionately mm-hmm. hurting minorities and people of color who die many years earlier, be, and, and this is largely related to food. So there's a lot of systems issues at play. Those are just three of many. I mean, 95% of the people on the USDA's Food Guidelines Committee in the US had conflicts of interest with food industry. So on the systems level, like we could have an entire conversation about why we're set up for failure. And of course, at levels, and personally, we're working on how to bring awareness to a lot of those issues because fundamentally we're going to have to change policy to make it a better system where it's easier and cheaper to buy healthy food as opposed to unhealthy food. It's not, it's very much a fallacy to think that healthy food is more expensive inherently than unhealthy food. It's actually just the way it's set up uh, with the financing of these production of these foods that makes them cheaper. So that all needs to get sorted out. But in the meantime, one of our core beliefs is that people who understand that feedback loop between the foods they're eating 
uh, and then what's happening to their body and can actually see that like for their own body over the course of an hour. You know, I had this meal and I had this reaction. It's monumentally powerful. Like you could have 50 people tell you not to eat Honey Nut Cheerios for breakfast and that eggs and avocado and spinach would be a better option. But until you see your glucose going up 120 points in 15 minutes and then crashing down 45 minutes later, leaving you feeling lethargic and tired and anxious and have more cravings for sugar. Like there's nothing that compares to that, to seeing your body generate sort of that motivating information. So I think the behavior change element is massive. I also think there's a real power in generating body awareness. Um, A lot of the ways that we produce processed foods is actually to almost have this like dissociative experience between the body and the food, like it, it hijacks our brain to basically just make us want more. It's high fructose corn syrup. One of the reasons it's so deadly is because um, when fructose is metabolized, and for, and of course, this is in like 70% of like foods on the packaged foods on the shelves in grocery stores. It's this drug that was invented in the 1970s that actually hijacks our hunger signals and makes us want to eat more as we eat more of the food. So it's the opposite of what our natural body cues would say, which is like, oh, I've gotten my caloric load. I need to, I can stop eating now. Fructose is the opposite. It's a feed forward mechanism. And the reasons for this are super fascinating. I'll mention just very briefly, uh, as fructose is metabolized, it turns into uric acid. And uric acid causes like acute mitochondrial dysfunction and basically makes your cell think that it's starving. And so it drives you to eat more, essentially. And the reason for this, if you think about hibernating animals, um, like a bear, for instance, it needs to hibernate for months and it needs to store as much fat as humanly possible. So when the berries are ripe in the late summer, fall, and they're filled with natural fructose, um, the bears will start eating the berries. And the biology wants them to eat as many berries as humanly possible, like gavage themselves so that they can store fat for winter for their hibernation that they can then burn throughout the winter. So that fructose actually turns them into violent and like almost crazy so that they outcompete all the other bears to eat as many berries as humanly possible over the course of a short period of time. So that's what's happening in like every American child who's eating sugar is we've now weaponized this natural biologic process for hibernating animals into high fructose corn syrup, put it in every food. And now you've got people just being like driven to eat this stuff. Now, the reason I mentioned that is to get back to a point about behavior change, which is there's this amazing concept called interoception, which is essentially the ability to sense kind of what's going on inside your body. It's kind of a fancy term for body awareness. And the audience will be very familiar with that because I teach it daily. Amazing. Yeah. So interoception, it's powerful. And I think a big part of our health journey out of the chronic disease epidemic is getting more in touch with what we're actually feeling inside at any given time. I know you talk a lot about breath work and like this is another element I think of interoception of like feeling your internal state. Are you anxious? You know, are, is your is your heart beating too, like fast? And then what natural tools do you have at your disposal to basically like in that moment um, positively impact your physiology? And I think that these tools like continuous glucose monitoring are one of the most powerful interoception tools I've ever used or seen used in clinical practice in my personal life and seen in other people using them because you start creating this feedback link between, okay, I ate this thing and then I felt this thing. And then this is what was happening to my glucose to the point where a lot of people after wearing continuous glucose monitors for a couple months or maybe longer, 
start to understand if they're where their glucose is at, even without wearing a CGM. So they have this interoception about what's happening with their blood sugar, even without wearing a t- continuous glucose monitor, because they've had so many cycles of seeing the data, cueing into how they feel, and then knowing what food generates that. So that gets me really excited um, in terms of body awareness. We also see this with stress on the continuous glucose monitor. A lot of people note that their glucose goes up spikes really high when they're stressed, like before giving a big presentation at work, uh, before a big performance event, they'll see a huge spike in glucose. And this is very understood physiologically uh, when the body releases cortisol and catecholamines, like stress hormones, it tells the liver to essentially dump glycogen into the bloodstream to fuel the muscles to respond to whatever threat is causing that stress. And so you know, in many cases in the modern Western world, the stress is not actually something you need to run from like a lion. It's just like more of a psychological stress. And so it's a maladaptive response in the modern world, but it, you know, it was well-intentioned through evolution. Yeah. But what- I literally just, I just literally spoke about this the other day, metabolic disconnect, right? So our, our, our body is saying we need to mobilize and do something active and, our, and we're sitting there doing nothing. So the brain is confused. The brain is driving the stress response to into the body and the body's going, I'm just sitting here. There's a disconnect between kind of the physiological response and the physical response. And it's so that that disconnect is such a key part of, I think, our chronic disease epidemic. I actually, I have a book coming out next year. And a lot of what I talk about is the idea of like, the body is confused right now. Like we're under all this chronic low-grade stress. We're spiking our own glucose because of those stress hormones. Then we're not moving. So that glucose is just sitting in the bloodstream. And you're having to produce all this insulin to bring it into the cells. And then the mitochondria aren't being tasked to do any work. And so they store it as fat. And it's just like, and then it's generating inflammation because we have this hyperglycemia all the time. And it's like, oh my God, our poor bodies. Like if we, if we just like moved them a little bit more and actually got that glucose out of the bloodstream, like they, things would just be so much smoother. But, but that's the type of interoception that I think is so key for behavior change because you can tell someone to meditate and do diaphragmatic breathing till you're blue in the face. Yeah. But until someone sees, oh my God, right before my presentation, my glucose went up 70 points and my heart rate variability dropped a little bit. And then I was able to take three box breaths, maybe way more than that, but like cue into your own tool toolbox of, of stress management and my glucose improved. I mean, that is super powerful. So yeah, I, I think as a behavior change tool, it's it's revolutionary. And then on top of that, it's making your behavioral interventions more on target. Yeah. Because I think the thing that frustrates so many people is they've tried everything and nothing's working. And when you can actually cue into what works for your own body, it, it makes the behavioral interventions uh, just more effective. And that's why we've seen, we have this amazing member who... Um, we we did a podcast with talking about her journey, but she lost 80 pounds in like eight months using levels. And she she was the CEO of Hot Topic and she's on the board of a bunch of publicly traded companies. And she had spent like over a million dollars trying to lose weight with everything, you know, doctors and meal delivery plans and this and that. But until she was able to actually just quickly define which foods were and were not working for her blood sugar levels. She was not able to have the success she wanted. And then just by using continuous glucose monitoring and levels, she was able to drop that weight in eight months after 30 years of struggle. So it's it's things like that, that it's not just about motivation and behavior change and accountability, but also like where you're pointing the arrow. So a few things that we should back up on and discuss, because I don't want to assume that the audience knows anything about this. 
first, we're speaking about insulin and insulin responses and glucose responses to food. And I'm first curious if you can if you can try to describe or define what a healthy glucose response is and insulin response is, what, what a normal glucose curve might look like. Um, and then another thing you brought up, and I think this is correlated in the same question, is you said, well, you're seeing all this inflammatory response from these high insulin spikes and these these drops. And so if you could define kind of where that happens and why that happens, because I wouldn't assume that most people listening have any idea um, where the correlation is. What do you mean? I'm eating food, my insulin spiking, why do I become inflamed? So if you could kind of unpack those two questions. Yeah, absolutely. The first question is about like, what is a healthy glucose response? And oddly enough, this is still actually a very controversial question. And I think Part of the reason it's a controversial question is because there hasn't been a ton of research defining what is an optimal glucose response for a person who's trying to prevent chronic disease. Because if you think about the way research is done in the US with our very reactionary healthcare system, we wait until people have fulminant diseases like type 2 diabetes, and then we study them aggressively. And so we're, we very much do not do research and like, okay, here's a healthy population that we're studying over time and seeing who gets diseases and who doesn't, and then helping people understand, okay, for the people who did not get disease, this was the glucose, insulin, metabolic pat- patterns. That research is like grossly lacking. And so right now, the ranges that I can kind of share are what the American Diabetes Association and the CDC and the International Diabetes Federation would say for like, this is what you want to stay under if you don't want to be called diabetic, but what's optimal is still up for debate. But I can speak to a little bit about how we've sort of kind of tried to read the tea leaves of all the research literature out there and come up with what what we think as a company and what our advisors believe is, is more of an optimal range. So according to the American Diabetes Association, essentially, if your fasting glucose is above 125 milligrams uh, per deciliter, that's considered a diabetic fasting glucose range. If it's between 100 and 125, that's pre-diabetes. And if your fasting glucose when you wake up and you haven't eaten anything for eight hours is below 100, that's considered non-diabetic. Then there's another way that diabetes is diagnosed, which is through an oral glucose tolerance test, which is where either 50 or 75 grams of a glucose drink is consumed very quickly. And then you basically look at the response over the course of the next two to three hours and see how high the glucose got and where it goes after two hours. And if the glucose after two hours is a hu- under 140 milligrams per deciliter, that's considered non-diabetic. And if it goes above 200 at any time point, that's an indication that there's some problem with glucose tolerance. And that's that would be considered like a indication that this person might have diabetes. So basically after two hours, after a big glucose load, if the glucose is under 140 milligrams per deciliter, that's considered non-diabetic. I, I think, so first of all, that's hard to extrapolate to a normal meal. And second, like I would just say if someone's glucose is close to 140, two hours after a meal, that's like a huge problem. That is That person is likely insulin resistant. That's very high. The average healthy young person, if you look at research data, they come up and come all the way down to baseline within two hours. And that baseline is usually somewhere between, you know, 75 and 95 milligrams per deciliter. So it should just look like if you're having a huge glucose load, it's like goes straight up in like 15, 20, 30 minutes and then comes down within like 90 minutes to two hours and you're back to your baseline under 100. So so just, just pause for a second. When, when I'm looking at a CGM graph, what would the approximate angle of descent be? Because because I've seen variable 
Like some people are coming down pretty quick, like in the matter of 30 minutes, and some people are coming down a more of a slow slope. Is there one that's more ideal than the next? Provided the one that comes down maybe a little bit more quickly doesn't bottom out, doesn't go into some hypoglycemic response, and just comes back down to normal and, and kind of maintains that 75 to 90, as you say, versus someone who comes down in a more slow trajectory. Could you talk a little bit about that and differentiate there? Sure, absolutely. So generally speaking, coming down more slowly is less ideal. And this gets into the insulin question. So the way that glucose is taken out of the bloodstream for the most part is that glucose enters the body through food. It stimulates for a hormone insulin to be released. Insulin then binds to the insulin receptor on a cell, which brings glucose channels to the cell membrane. Those glucose channels allow glucose to go into the cell where it can be you know, either processed into ATP by the mitochondria or stored as fat. Um, and then that's sort of like an ideal situation. If someone is metabolically dysfunctional, uh, which generally is rooted in the fact that the mitochondria is experiencing dysfunction, which can result from several things that we could potentially talk about next. There's about eight or nine things in our modern world that are causing mitochondrial dysfunction that everyone should be aware of. So the mitochondria isn't basically able to convert that glucose in the cell to energy effectively because it's essentially hurt, it's damaged. What that will do is tell the system, this cell can't process glucose to energy effectively, glucose to ATP. So we can't take as much glucose into the cell. So what that's going to do is lead to insulin resistance, which is a mechanism that essentially blocks the intake, that process of you know, the insulin will still bind to the cell receptor, the insulin receptor, but the pathway that leads to those glucose channels to go to the cell membrane is going to be stunted. So you're going to have less ability for glucose to come into the cell. So that's called insulin resistance. And then the body tries to basically overcompensate by releasing more insulin to drive glucose into the cell. But that glucose, that cell can't really handle that glucose. So a lot of it gets stored to fat and then you get intracellular toxic fats which then creates more of a problem. And this is the pathway to type 2 diabetes. And so ultimately, like our job as people is to keep our mitochondria as healthy as possible so that the cell doesn't have these feedback signals that essentially block that insulin signal from working and creating insulin resistance. And how that relates to your question is that if someone is insulin resistant, meaning their cells are sort of numb to that insulin binding to it and can't get the glucose in, it's a sign of mitochondrial dysfunction. And they are not going to clear that glucose from the meal out of the bloodstream as quickly. So you might see the glucose response being higher, lasting longer, taking two, three, four hours to get back down to baseline because the body's basically just working as hard as it can to get that glucose out of the bloodstream, but it's less efficient because the person's insulin resistant. So that person that is consistently seeing that instead of their glucose kind of going straight up and then straight down, and in, which is the healthier way, and instead they're seeing, okay, my glucose goes pretty darn high and then takes like four hours to come down to baseline. That's a person who I'd be like, okay, we probably need to dig way deeper into your metabolic health and get you on a, like a really holistic plan for improving your mitochondrial health and free you up from some of that insulin resistance. And so that person is going to want to do a, a wider battery of metabolic testing, like getting their fasting insulin checked. And, and of course, the reason that fasting insulin test is going to be so helpful is because based on what I just talked about, the person who's insulin resistant is going to have higher fasting insulin levels because their cells are numb to the insulin signal. So the body's trying to overcompensate by pumping out more insulin to drive the glucose into the cell. So, you know, 
it's really fascinating because you and I could have the exact same fasting glucose levels. Like let's say we're both in the healthy range, which is like 80 milligrams per deciliter. So we wake up in the morning and both of us have a fasting glucose of 80 milligrams per deciliter. If I'm insulin resistant and you're not, I might be produce, having to produce five times as much insulin to get my fasting glucose to be 80 than you do. Maybe your insulin level is two and mine is 15. So my body's having to work so much harder to overcome that mitochondrial dysfunction, that block. And so just by looking at glucose, like we might think we're the same, but if you look at some of these more detailed glucose dynamics, like how quickly we come down after a meal or additional lab testing, like fasting insulin, we'd start to see that we are actually on very different trajectories. And I'm probably going to be the one who gets cancer and heart disease and a stroke and dies five years earlier and has depression and blah, blah, blah. And you're going to be the one who ages gracefully. Yeah. So talk to me about people who have a lower resting glucose. I've got some clients who sit sometimes in the even low 60s, high 60s for sure. And these are seemingly metabolically healthy people, very fit, very active, very lean, but yet sometimes they're just very low. So I'm curious what you, if you've seen that consistently and what would be the typical cause of that? Well, the first question I would ask that person is if they're seeing that on their continuous glucose monitor or on a finger prick. See, Jim. Yeah. So the first thing that I would tell that person to do is actually do a finger prick with like a little glucometer. We have. Yeah, they're the same. They're the same. Okay. And the reason I ask that is because one of the limitations of continuous glucose monitors is that they become increasingly inaccurate at low values. So, and they skew low. So you've got a lot of people who might be seeing a 65 milligrams per deciliter, which is like technically hypoglycemic on their continuous glucose monitor. But if they prick their finger, it's actually like 80. Um, And so every wearable is going to have some margin of error between the wearable and the gold standard. So for instance, if I'm wearing an EKG, like an actual gold standard in the hospital EKG measuring my heart, there's going to be an average of a 10% difference what's called a MARD mean amplitude relative difference between my Fitbit or my Aura or whatever. And that, that's the same, 10% is pretty standard across wearables and it's the same for CGM. But that actually goes up as you get below 80 milligrams per deciliter in the bloodstream. So that that's why I asked that. So people, then I'm, the reason I'm spending a little time talking about that is a lot of people will freak out when they see their glucose low on their CGM, even if they're totally asymptomatic, like no hypoglycemia symptoms. And so I always say, like, make sure you check your finger prick first before, like, calling an ambulance, unless you feel unwell, when, of course, then you should seek, you know, seek medical help. And the, the glucometers are, you know, the ones where you actually prick your finger, and I'm just saying this to your audience here, um, and measure it on a little test strip. And those can be bought at any pharmacy for, like, 30 to $50 or on Amazon. They're over the counter. Yeah, those um, tend to be really accurate. They are more, they they tend to be um, closer to the blood. Like, so the gold standard is doing a vein draw. Actually, someone like a phlebotomist pulling blood out of your bloodstream and measuring it in a lab. Right. And then that's gold standard. And then capillary glucose is looking at, that's the finger prick. And that's going to be more accurate, close to gold standard. Because for one, you're checking from the blood. And a CGM is actually measuring an interstitial fluid. It's not actually measuring your blood glucose. It's measuring the glucose that seeps out of the bloodstream into the clear fluid that surrounds our cells. And those tend to be almost the same. That's why we, like these are FDA approved for managing diabetes. Like, but but they there can be some discrepancy. 
it's interesting that the interstitial fluid will go up as so you would assume it's measuring blood because when you eat and you're watching the thing go up in a matter of 15 minutes that's a very yeah. quick response so i guess it gives context to like really how quickly blood glucose is rising if it's getting into the interstitial fluid that quickly to be able to read back onto your cgm it's so wild to me like you've probably seen this when you eat a high carb food like you can actually start seeing it going up in minutes mm-hmm. and it's like wait this was went to my gut was absorbed into my bloodstream transferred out of the bloodstream into my interstitial fluid and i'm already seeing it on my monitor in five minutes that usually happens to me with like my spikers which are like grapes and sweet potatoes and stuff like that but um but it's it's pretty incredible the body is incredible um but so used, oh go ahead have you ever used beta alanine the supplement beta alanine i have not i use that as a as a a way for people to start feeling how quickly their body responds to food. So beta alanine is a is an endurance supplement, helps clear blood lactate and, uh, and muscular lactate, and it, it creates this uh, synesthesia, like this, it's like tingling. You can feel it around your whole body in like like a minute. And you're just like, this is insane how fast you yeah it gets into your bloodstream. So it gives it gives good context to how quickly things just get into your system. Like you feel like in your face, in your tips, of your hands, in your feet, and you know, 30 to 60 seconds is a very, and, and it's a very popular supplement and very effective supplement, but it's really a good way for people to start feeling their body. Is it helpful for reducing like delayed onset muscle soreness and things like yeah. that? Oh yeah, it's, it's one of the most effective for improving uh, muscular endurance, improving uh, like lactate clearing capabilities in the muscle. Amazing. I picked up boxing recently and I'm so sore and I'm <laughs> thinking of ways to, to get better at that. But, um, yeah. So for your guy who is actually at 65, like based on CGM and his finger prick, the, I mean, I think the first thing I'd ask is, is he symptomatic? So it's like, is he feeling hypoglycemic? Does he have lightheadedness? Does he, you know, feel uh, jittery? And for most people who are healthy, the answer would be no. And then I'd probably ask if he's on a ketogenic or low carb diet. And if he's checking his ketones, because Definitely in our ketogenic population, who I would say like are above maybe 0.5 millimoles per liter of ketones, they can drop lower with their glucose and not have any symptoms because they have this alternate fuel source. And so they're sort of less reliant on on the glucose being at sort of those higher normal levels like 75, 85, 95. So I think this is another area where like we need to better understand what is the range of normal. A lot of the hypoglycemic literature is in the type 1 diabetes population who are, uh, you know, using insulin to manage their type 1 diabetes. And and you want to be very careful about people not going hypoglycemic because it could be a sign that they've overdosed their insulin. And that could be very life-threatening. If you overdo your insulin and drop your blood sugar too, too low, you can go into a coma and die that's the biggest risk with type one acutely with type one diabetes. So that's a lot of that kind of like fear that has pervaded just all sort of conversation around hypoglycemia. But the reality is that for someone who's metabolically flexible, who can bounce into ketogenesis when there's low glucose supply and can utilize glucose effectively because they have great mitochondrial function when glucose is present, they can be bouncing around in the low 60s and probably feel completely fine. And I guess they have some ketones on board if you check so, that as well. The reason I brought that up specifically is because I'm curious if you want to speak to whether low in general is better, especially someone who would be, you know, reading as clinically low in the say high 60s. So is it aspirational to get our glucose lower in general for long-term metabolic health? Such a great question. And the answer is yes, up into a point, and we need more research. So 
in terms of just like an average healthy person who's doing all the healthy lifestyle and stuff, kind of balance, like exercising, sleeping, eating a balanced diet, et cetera, they should be like, like you want to get as close to low normal as possible for the best outcomes. And low normal is basically a fasting glucose between, I would say, 70 and 85 milligrams per deciliter. So right now, the normal range for fasting glucose is 70 to 100 milligrams per deciliter. But if you actually dig into the research, as people increase in that range towards 100, which is the threshold that you'd fall into prediabetes above that, as you get closer to 100, your risk of all cardiometabolic diseases goes up like sharply. So it is such a travesty that we, the doctors are telling patients who have a fasting glucose of 99 milligrams per deciliter that essentially they're the same as someone who has a fasting glucose of 72 milligrams per deciliter. Right. Because that person who's 72 is probably going to live longer, have a better life, not have the diseases that the other person is. And so that's number one. So within the range of normal, you want to be on the lower half for sure. If your gluco fasting glucose is getting above 85 milligrams per deciliter routinely, I'd really want to do a more thorough metabolic workup. And I say routinely because it can bounce around day to day. Like if you have a poor night's sleep or eat a really high carb meal the, the night before, or you don't work out for three days, your, your fasting glucose could actually go up a little bit, which is a great reminder of like, oh shit, I got to get on my health habits. And then, you know, you sleep eight hours, you do some lifting and some zone two, you eat some really great, you know, balanced food and all of a sudden your glucose slides back down to like 82 and it's like okay so that that's where the biofeedback can be so great we really should be knowing day to day what our fasting glucose is like with continuous glucose monitors so we can modulate and get back on track so yes lower is better now let me just speak to that really quickly just anecdotally so when i use a cgm if i can if i get my blood glucose 75 76 resting i feel markedly different than if my glucose is 85 resting so if I go a couple months without using a CGM and I put one on, I'm like, my resting glucose is 83, 85. I start to notice a little bit of lethargy, a little bit of just like, uh, it doesn't feel like I'm producing energy as fast as I need to for my daily requirements. If I get it down to 72, 75, even 70, I just feel like I have an abundance of energy for everything I possibly need for the day. And that's another reason why I think a CGM is so incredibly useful because as you say, yeah, great, you're, you're under 100, that's healthy. No, it's not. You're going to feel so different just by getting it down five points or even 10 points as far as a baseline. And I don't know this for certain, but I would assume that's what's literally happening in your cells during that period where you have the more energy at the lower fasting glucose is your mitochondria are literally functioning better. Yeah. And so of course you're going to have more energy because you know, you're more insulin sensitive and your cells are literally making energy better, which is something that's very dynamic. Like we know that one workout can change mitochondrial function. So it's so dynamic. And that's also why I think continuous monitoring is so helpful compared to like these single time points. But a couple of nuances to this question about lower is better. So there's actually been research that's shown that as people's fasting glucose goes below 70, they actually have worse health outcomes. Hmm. So it's kind of a J-shaped curve where like the the lower it goes, you actually start to see like all-cause mortality go up. This is like very observational research. So I think that I, my hunch of why that's happening is because low glucose in someone who is not metabolically flexible can be a stress signal on the body and actually potentially be like a, like a chronic stressor. And so what I would love to see and research I would love to see is take people who are deep in ketosis, whose fasting glucose is in the 60s, but their ketones are high, 
and see how their health is over the long term. Because I would guess that someone who is able to really effectively burn fat for ATP, so their cells actually aren't in a stress-starving state, is going to do better with a lower glucose than someone who maybe is dipping into the low into the 60s for whatever reason, but maybe they're not fat adapted. Um, that, it, that's is my possible? Hunch. Is that possible though? So if someone's hovering in the low 60s, is it possible for them to be not be fat adapted? Like, if, so if their baseline is like consistently 65 to 70, and they don't have enough blood glucose to fuel life, they would either be really tired or probably using glucose ketones, would they not? Part, I can't say for Hard to say. I, yeah. It's hard to say. I think 60, I mean, 60 is not like incompatible with life. Like when I, um, yeah, like I, I think that it really depends on the person. Um, but that we just don't know the answer to that, that question. So there's also that- this interesting thing where like someone might be in the very early stages of, and I don't know this for sure, but this is again, just kind of like positing. Someone could be very early on the spectrum of insulin resistance where they are actually becoming insulin resistant very early and their body's actually churning out more insulin right to overcome that insulin block and that actually could potentially temporarily make their fasting glucose look a little bit lower before they kind of go on that trajectory of glucose rising in the bloodstream again i don't know that for sure but everything's so counter-regulatory uh you know it's it's kind of interesting so the the key here i would say is that even though continuous glucose monitoring gives you tons of additional information, and again, it's like allows you to read the tea leaves of stuff that's going on, getting additional metabolic lab testing, I think gives way, way more context of how to interpret your CGM data. So like, and and some of the very basic ones would be like getting a fasting insulin check, getting a semoglobin A1C, um, other tests like we love is like ApoB, uric acid, triglycerides for sure, because triglycerides is a good marker of how glucose is basically being converted to fat in the body. So glucose is super, super helpful. And it's the only thing we can continuously monitor right now in the human body at home. The only molecule right now that we can monitor, which is kind of crazy. There's more coming down the pipeline, but right now all we can measure continuously as a biofeedback loop is glucose. But getting triglycerides and fasting insulin at a minimum hemoglobin O1C, ApoB, uh, uric acid. I think those are some other helpful ones that can give you just like a more holistic picture of yeah. what's going on with your metabolic health. So kind of segueing from what we just talked about, some low glucose and with high glucose, you also t- you, you, you drew a correlation there with inflammation. I'd love to have you just kind of tie that back together. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a bidirectional relationship between essentially inflammation and insulin resistance where high levels of inflammation in the body can actually drive insulin resistance and insulin resistance can further worsen inflammation. And high glucose in its own right can actually trigger immune activation in the body. And I think the reason for this, just like framing it, is that when your glucose skyrockets and then crashes, which is what typically happens after a really large glucose spike, is you crash down and have this period of reactive hypoglycemia, that is going to trigger the stress pathway in the body and that's going to be associated with generating some low-grade inflammation. So is this, if this is happening like five times a day because you're eating the standard American diet that's re- rooted in refined grains and refined sugar, that's going to lead to like a chronic inflammatory milieu. The other piece of it is that when inflammation rises in the body and you're basically releasing all these inflammatory cytokines, like these chemicals that immune cells 
secrete to recruit other immune cells and to signal to the body that there's some problem, that actually directly impairs insulin signaling inside the cell. So those cytokines block effective transmission of the insulin signal uh, from the receptor to the inside of the cell. So that's going to worsen um, insulin resistance and keep blood sugar higher. And this is part of why you see when people who are acutely sick, like with a virus or something, or they're dealing with a bacterial illness, they often will actually have um, hyperglycemia, like high blood sugar, because the inflammation itself is causing insulin resistance. So, and then the last piece I would mention is that like anything that's impairing mitochondrial activity, and again, we can talk through some of what those vectors are. If, If the mitochondria is not working effectively, that's like the ultimate stress signal in the body. Because if your cells aren't making energy properly, it seems like there's a really big threat going on. And so if you stop making cellular ATP effectively, it will generate an inflammatory response. And it will also, it will generate this, uh, essentially a damaged mitochondria is going to produce more oxidative stress, like free radicals, these damaging metabolic byproducts. You think of like a damaged engine of a car is going to produce more exhaust. That's kind of what's happening with like a damaged mitochondria. So you get an imbalance of these basically reactive molecules that get seeped out of the mitochondria when it's when it's working under strain. And those free radicals are just incredibly inflammatory, basically. So it's just this very like intermingled stew of insulin resistance, hyperglycemia, mitochondrial dysfunction, and inflammation that is fundamentally the root of, of every chronic disease we're facing in America. And so then in terms of the mitochondrial function, the question is, well, what, what could be causing a problem with my mitochondria? And there are so many, so many vectors that are that are uniquely attacking the mitochondria in our modern Western world uh, these days. So I like to think of them as like swords, like you've got this cell, which is this sphere, and it's like living out in this modern world. And you've got all these swords coming at it that are basically like, like hurting the mitochondria. And those are essentially ultra processed food. So processed food that is going to strain the mitochondria with all this excess of glucose that basically gum up the system and and just create like a toxic level of substrate that it's asking it to produce to ATP. If you take any factory and all of a sudden ask it to produce 10 times more of its product, like it's not going to work. The factory yeah. is going to like have a revolt, you know? Yeah. Is that anecdotal? Is that proven? Because there's so much pushback on on processed foods is it, in, in your opinion or in your experience, is it just simply the amount of food going through the system at one time because of the, the massive spikes in, in um, triglycerides and glucose or gly- glycogen? Because you hear so many people pushing back on, well, you know, again, maybe not in our world, but in you know the internet, people pushing back on whether or not processed foods are in any way different. So if, if you just equate for calories, people will argue to the death that, hey, this food is not bad, there's nothing wrong with these foods. So I'm curious... You know, how much of your information is anecdotal? How much is it based on science? Oh, I mean, well, one thing to just n- know is that like processed food companies spend 11 times more on nutrition research than the NIH. And they're, they're not doing that out of philanthropic goodwill. They're doing that to produce research that confuses the message of whether the products they're creating are damaging to health. So um, the, there is such intense overwhelming evidence that the more ultra processed food you eat uh as a percentage of your diet the more it causes all-cause mortality chronic disease type 2 diabetes obesity that's that's pretty that's pretty clear and the mechanisms through which that is happening is the fact that 
simply put, like the the cellular machinery is being tasked with uh, processing such a high density of individual substrates that it's essentially impossible and disease essentially a adaptive response to not being able to process as much as what's coming in coupled with a system that is being damaged so it's it's unable to do its work because of other things that are happening outside of food so like you take a mitochondria that needs to convert glucose to atp and if that mitochondria is like perfect it's going to do a good job of it if that mitochondria is being damaged by the other vectors which is like sedentary behavior low muscle mass um chronic low-grade stress, environmental toxins, uh, you know, getting artificial blue light all the time, which damages the mitochondria, a chronic inflammatory environment. If that mitochondria is already hurt from all the other things, that ultra-processed food is going to be more damaging to that that cell than someone who's got like this perfect mitochondria. So everything's context-dependent. So it's too, like, like processed food is one of the many things that's hurting the system, but you're, you're putting it into a body that's already damaged by all these other lifestyle factors. So the, the second piece of processed food that I think is uniquely damaging to mitochondria is that it's devoid a lot of a lot of the healthful um, components of food that can also support mitochondrial function. So the mitochondria require, uh, dozens of micronutrients, basically vitamins and minerals and small molecules to essentially allow it to do its work. And you can think of these as like little lock and key cofactors to allow the metabolic machinery inside the mitochondria to do its job in the electron transport chain. And the processed food is going to be depleted of a lot of these key micronutrients. And it's, it's amazing because like you look at conventionally grown food versus like organic food or versus food that's like grown with really good soil and like the micronutrient composition essentially like goes up with each of those as 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 the quality of the food gets better so we're both like getting too much of the nutrient substrate to create energy which is essentially hurting the system gumming up the system but also getting too little of the micronutrients that essentially allow the the, the whole machinery to work properly and these are things like um like almost all the B vitamins, vitamin C, uh, zinc, magnesium. These are kind of some of the key cofactors. So that's sort of just like the food bucket, too little micronutrients, too much substrate. There's other factors too. Like when we eat processed food, we don't get like the polyphenols and the antioxidants that are occur uh, naturally occurring in whole foods. And even when you transport fresh foods across the country or fruit from Chile, the antioxidant and polyphenol composition drops significantly. So we hear a lot about like local food sourcing and that sort of seems frou-frou, but actually getting your food from the soil to your mouth more quickly means that it's going to have more of these healthful chemicals. And the reasons the polyphenols are important um, in the fresh foods is because they actually are food for the microbiome, which then produce uh, byproducts that are actually, some of them are mitochondrial regulators and, and metabolic regulators. And the antioxidants are important because they quell some of that oxidative stress that we talked about that's causing essentially the exhaust from the damaged mitochondria. So there's so many aspects of like whole food and unprocessed food that create like essentially the right ecosystem for metabolic health. So it's just like not even a question, I think, about whether ultra processed food is, is not great. Listen, I'm not on the same page. I just, you know, there's going to be a lot of trolls out there who want to hate on it. So we got we to gotta address it. Totally, totally. Yeah. And yeah. And then of course, there's other things as well. There's the omega-3 fatty acids that we want to think about in the food bucket because they are going to have more skew the immune uh, 
regulatory pathways towards basically uh, stopping the chronic inflammatory cycle. And so omega-3s are going to be, you know, much less quantity in in ultra processed foods. You're going to see them much more in like the sustainably raised meats and fish and things like that. So that's just food. That's just the food category. I'll quickly run through the others, not in that much detail, but the other issues that are impacting mitochondria is lack of exercise. So sedentary behavior, exercise, resistance training, and ZO2 are both, of course, powerful stimuluses for different aspects of mitochondrial health. Zone two is going to increase quantity of mitochondria. Resistance training is going to increase muscle mass and mitochondrial function. And so both of those are key. And the average American is doing neither. Um, you know, you take a person, there was a study in 2020 from the Journal of Diabetes, and it showed it was like 3,000 men and showed that people who did no strength training were basically 2.4 times more likely to be insulin resistant than men who just did one to two hours per week. So you just, you really want to give that stimulus to the muscles to grow and to increase mitochondrial function and quantity. Then you've got chronic stress. We're living with a lot of this like low grade, you know, stress through our sensationalist media, through text, through constant pings and honks and dings and all that stuff. The chronic stress is going to be a signal via cytokines to basically promote insulin resistance. You've got sleep deprivation. We're sleeping like almost two hours less on average than we were 150 years ago or so. And sleep is just such an important time for like a metabolic reboot. Um, it allows our bodies a time to rest and recover specifically on the cellular level. So sleep deprivation is a big one. So sleep, exercise, food, stress, those are kind of the four key pillars that our modern world is unfortunately creating an environment in which we don't have ideal conditions for all of those. And then the other three I would mention um, briefly is environmental toxins, uh, light and temperature. So environmental toxins, we have about 80,000 synthetic toxins, basically like chemicals made in factories that are uh, made by industry, most of which have not been studied for human safety and almost none of which have been studied together for how they interact to create problems in the body. Um, and so we're exposed to all these chemicals. And what we're learning recently is that many of them are actually direct mitochondrial disruptors. And some of those are labeled obesogens. So they're now obesogenic chemicals that we know directly lead to obesity by hurting our mitochondrial function. So toxins is a big one. Um, temperature is an interesting one because we, our mitochondria are heat generators. When they convert food to energy, they generate heat. And another signal to the body to generate heat is being cold. Um, but in the modern world, uh, we now are very afraid of, of any, anything outside of like 70 to 72 degrees Fahrenheit. And so we really reduce the amount of times that our body is exposed to cold or high heat. So without that stimulus to cold regularly, which like through the rest of human history, we were probably cold a lot of the time, we don't stimulate the mitochondria to make more heat. So cold is an amazing stimulus, of course, to uh, get the mitochondria to, to be more metabolically active. And yeah, the last one is light. So one of the key metabolic regulators in our body is exposure to light when we wake up in the morning and um, I know you had Huberman, Dr. Huberman on your podcast recently, and he's like the world expert in this, but like, you know, our body doesn't know what time it is really. It it has these, you know, circadian pathways and clock genes that have a general sense of a pattern, but the way that they're actually synchronized is by light hitting our retina and going through this tiny little two millimeter hole in the back of our eyeballs, optic nerve to the brain, suprachiasmatic nucleus, set up the whole body to like understand that it is morning. And that's why it's so important to get that morning sunlight when you wake up, because that is literally telling your body, 
it's time to do all the daytime activities with metabolism. But none of us are seeing the sunlight in the morning because we work from home and we stay inside and we're not moving and we're on our computers. And so toxic light, which basically I would define as not seeing natural full spectrum sunlight during the day and then seeing lots of artificial blue light at night has totally confused our bodies in terms of metabolic pathways. So um, so simply put, food, sedentary behavior, lack of sleep, chronic low-grade stress, environmental toxins, uh, living in a thermoneutral existence, and totally flip-flopping our, our light, our sunlight, and artificial light um, are, are some of the main uh, like seven factors that impact poor mitochondrial health and which basically make it such an uphill battle for us to create energy effectively in our cells. Yeah, great summary. So one final question that I think you brought up that I don't want to gloss over and also we respect for your time. You said your spikers, and I don't think everyone knows that foods have a variable response in different people. And, and that's another really great discovery using a CGM. You can actually see which foods tend to be flatlined for you, which tends which tend to spike. So here's a weird one for me. Bananas, flatline, blueberries, skyrocket, which is very counterintuitive, right? People would assume blueberries are going to be low glycemic. Bananas are known to be high glycemic. For me, I can eat three bananas and get no glucose response, or at least no, no spike. I eat, I don't know, maybe two tablespoons of berries, and it's going to skyrocket and dump. So interesting. And again, most people would never assume that. So I think if you want to talk a little bit about maybe your personal um, things that spike your glucose and what's actually happening. There's a great book, Wired to Eat, Rob Wolf talks about this, um, talks about the, there's variable variability in food uh, responses individually. I'd love to have you talk about it. Absolutely. Well, first of all, you are a unicorn because everyone usually spikes to bananas and not blueberries. So that is actually, that's fascinating. I spike to both, unfortunately. But yeah, so so you get at such an important point, which is one of the huge values of, of monitoring glucose in some capacity during your life, which is to see what is your individual response to foods. There's an amazing paper that came out in 2015 in the journal Cell that was called Personalized Nutrition by Prediction of Glycemic Responses. And so what they did is they took 800 non-diabetic individuals and they put continuous glucose monitors on all of them and they gave them standardized meals, including bananas, and they looked at all their glucose responses. And the dogma at the time was really centered around this concept of like the glycemic index of a food, which essentially says that each food has some inherent capability of spiking glucose. Like its glycemic index is like how likely it is to kind of raise your glucose. Um, and what they found in this study was that that actually really doesn't hold when you look at a large population eating the same food, because there was a huge spectrum amongst the people in the study of how they responded to the same foods from no response to huge, huge, huge responses. And some of the responses were actually totally inverse. So they would give a standardized cookie and a banana to all the people and some people had a huge spike to banana and no spike to cookie. And then other people had the exact opposite response. So Does that make cookies better for someone than bananas? So that's that's <laughs> such an interesting question. And I would say that it, it's more complex than just like, if you have a glucose response, is it is it good or bad? What I would say is that if you find that there is a food that is healthy, like, like a whole food, a natural food that... Um, is unprocessed and you're eating it a lot and you you use a CGM and you find that you actually have a very pronounced uh, glucose response to it. So let's say banana, sweet potato, grapes, oatmeal, 
So like a natural food, but you're having a, a glucose spike. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad food because of course, when you think about food, you're really thinking about what is the molecular composition of that food. And a, a, a good food is a food that its molecular composition meets the needs of your body. So this is so what's interesting is that I would take that information and maybe think about how to get the nutrients from that food, either from a different source that spikes my glucose less or in a different way. So maybe pairing that food with more fiber, more protein, more fat to get less of a glucose spike, or better yet, walking after eating that food so that you're getting that food, you're getting the enjoyment, you're getting what you're like, you're getting the nutrients, but you're actually mitigating the glucose response by immediately pulling out of the bloodstream so that the muscles can use it. So there's a lot of these these different behavioral tactics you can use to, you know, eat a food you love and, and reduce the glucose excursion. And someone might say, and I'm sure someone will think this listening to this, for a healthy person, it doesn't matter if your glucose goes up and down. All, all whole foods are healthy. This is terrible. This is going to cause people to, you know, have eating disorders. And I just vehemently disagree with that because this is the thing. Even if a healthy person has a pancreas that produces insulin and can get that glucose spike down, having a big spike and a big drop does not feel good. Right. It doesn't feel good. Like you feel cravings, you feel low energy. And we've all had that experience of like a post-meal slump. And my goal is to avoid as many of those as possible. So I, even if it's a blueberry, which is like obviously a beautiful food, if it's spiking me, I am going to do something to mitigate that spike, whether it means pairing it with chia pudding, which has tons of fiber and protein, whether it means walking after eating blueberries, whether it means maybe only eating blueberries in the morning when I'm more insulin sensitive, more insulin sensitive, or eating them before or after a workout when I'm more insulin, I'm sorry, after a workout when I'm uh, more insulin sensitive, just thinking more holistically about this because I don't want spikes because they don't feel good. And over time, spikes are taxing on the potty repeatedly. The second thing is, is that you might be eating blueberries all the time because you think they're like the healthiest suit in the world, but you don't actually like them that much. So let's say you learn that you spike to blueberries a bunch and you're like, wait a minute, I could just be eating this other fruit that also has a bunch of antioxidants and this and that, like maybe raspberries or blackberries. And you can eat a different food within that category. So it's like, it just gives you the flexibility to pick a different whole food choice if that one is having this collateral reaction that may not feel good or over time isn't going to be the most helpful, healthful option. So if I had an apple and a pear and I love them each equally, and let's say they have pretty much the exact same nutrition and the apple spikes me and the pear doesn't spike me, I would definitely choose the pear all things being equal. And I don't I don't think that's too controversial to say, but there is definitely pushback on that point because we obviously don't want to demonize any whole foods, but it's not about demonizing them. It's about understanding like where you're going to get the best bang for your bike, best bang for your buck with any particular food. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's an amazing uh, summary. And I'm glad you touched on those things. I'll actually plan to do a summary right after this podcast and our wrap up and I'll, I'll touch on all the points you brought up there, as well as some that I've anecdotally experienced. Dr. Casey, it's been an absolute pleasure um, Levels is hooking up the listeners of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast with the ability to get their own CGM. I got to tell you, I've probably sent at least 500 people to David Sinclair's link because I didn't have a link. And I was like, if you want one, just go to levels.com slash Sinclair. I'm like, I know it off fire because I, I sit on the podcast. And I'm like, just go there. So a lot of my clients are using it. So we're super grateful to be able to support the listeners of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast with Levels. So it's levels.link slash muscle. 
you guys want to go there, I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. That's levels.link, L-I-N-K, slash muscle. And you guys can get hooked up with your own CGM. Uh, Dr. Casey, thank you so much. Thank you to Levels. Uh, it's been an absolute great conversation. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Ben. That's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you for being here. A few summary points from today's podcast. So if you didn't gather, I have become an advocate and fan of continuous glucose monitors simply as one of the top interventions I've been able to come across for giving us real-time feedback on what we're doing. Real-time feedback, in my opinion, and yet my experience have shown to be incredibly effective in inducing behavior change. Probably the single best intervention I've found so far inducing behavior change because if I see something bad happening to my body, immediately I am going to stop. I'm more likely to stop. And you know, it always blows my mind that people can smoke cigarettes and not think like, gosh, I'm doing something terrible for my body. Imagine you could in real time see what it's doing wrong for your lungs. If your bloodstream, you could see a picture or an image or some type of feedback going, holy smokes, this thing's going to kill me. I, I would be more likely to stop because it's immediate. If I see it in 25 years, the likelihood of me stopping now is very, very small. And I think this is one of the amazing, enormous benefits of using glucose monitor. Here's one interesting thing that I didn't talk about in the podcast. The thing that I notice influences my glucose more than even the food is my sleep and stress. And I bunch those together because sleep and stress are ultimately inextricably linked. It's how your nervous system is responding to day-to-day -day activity and day-to-day -day life. And so if I find myself underslept, overstressed, or even under-moving, under being underactive, my glucose responses are completely different. If I sleep well, if I'm managing my stress well, maybe I'm doing some breath work, some walks outside, some meditation. If I'm exercising, if I'm getting my 10,000 steps, if I'm getting my 10 minutes of walking after I eat, if I'm getting my, my 60 minutes of weight training in uh, daily or even every other day, my glucose seems to be flat, seems to be very stable. And I associate that with better, better energy production, better fat metabolism. And to be honest, just feeling overall better. I feel like I have an abundance of energy always to attack what life throws me. Sometimes at the end of the day, when I'm stressed, when I'm under stress, I get to five o'clock and my eyes are kind of closing, I'm a little bit tired, and I could just choose to sit down and do nothing for the rest of the day. However, when I'm managing my glucose well, that isn't the case. I have an abundance of energy to, to play, to train, to do whatever I need to do, whatever I want to do at the end of the day. That, gents, is a powerful place to come to the world. Um, so my suggestion to you is if you haven't already tried a continuous glucose monitor, um, one, to figure out how lifestyle influences it, how food influences it, how even the order in which you eat your foods massively influences it. We didn't talk about that on this podcast. If you simply eat your protein and your veg first, your glucose will spike less. If you eat your protein, your veg, and your fats first, and then your carbs last, your glucose will spike even less, it seems. So, and you also will see then uh, things like coffee, things like saunas, things like cold plunges can all spike in glucose. And sometimes if you're if you're tired and you eat something that normally suits you well, and, and when you're tired, it doesn't suit you well. And you can see all these different types of things and really get this real amazing real-time feedback as to what's happening inside your body. I love it. I'm saying uh, levels.link, L-I-N-K, slash muscle. Get hooked up right now. Ladies and gents, and again, this podcast is brought to you by me and the team at Muscle Intelligence. We're doing some amazing things in bridging the gap between muscle building and longevity. There's there's some uh, confusion in that space. There's confusion around, well, should I be adding muscle? Should I be fasting all the time? Some people are saying protein is terrible for you. Some people are saying protein is everything. Sifting through all that, not only that, but how to train most effectively, 
how to train for optimized cardiovascular function and VO2 max, how to train for optimized metabolic function, how to train for optimized uh, physical aesthetic. Like I want to look, feel, and perform at my best for the rest of my life. I don't ever want to diminish. And again, yes, it's going to be a cyclical thing based on life sometimes getting in the way. Sometimes you've got an abundance of time. Sometimes you don't have any. Learning how to navigate those peaks and valleys is what we do here at Muscle Intelligence. If you're not already part of the Muscle Intelligence incredible community of men and women, there's definitely some women in there. Not not a lot, but there's some. Ladies, you're always welcome. And and the the coaching is specifically for men because I think women is really complex. Women, women hormone levels are very, very complex. And to understand it is uh, years and years and years that most people simply don't have. And I simply don't, I certainly don't have. And so I don't want to claim to be an expert in female optimization when uh, I can focus on being an expert in male optimization because that's where I've cut my teeth for the last 25 years. Yes, I'm old, don't make fun, uh, but I'm getting better every day like fine wine. Ladies and gents, thanks for being here. Mustintelligence.com slash community. Have an amazing day. We'll see you all there. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.